I'm just figuring something out here. And I don't like the answer I'm coming up with. <laughs> How often does that happen to you in the course of a day? About, you say about ten times? Well, you're lucky. You don't do much figuring, do you? <laughs> Hey, George, you want me to play some Jews Heart tonight? Every time you're on, you inspire me to do that. Would you like a little? I hadn't even thought about it. Jerry, come in here and get this here while I'm... Uh, I'll, give, I'll give you a little of my equipment here, and I'll try here. See whether I can still play this thing. And uh, to, uh, quit writing me letters. You know, it's a funny thing about the Jews Harp, and I, I don't feel necessarily about doing... Here, there you go, Jerry. Thank you. Just take that out, and uh, wait, I'll tell you what side to play. Uh, give me... Let's try... Uh, let's try uh, cut two on this side, and then we'll try another variation of the same thing Cut five on the other side. Cut two and cut five. Let's have cut two on that side first. I just feel like it here tonight. You know, it's a strange thing about the Jews' heart. Well, it really is. It, it, it's one of the very few instruments that either turns people on completely or makes them com just uncontrollably angry. <laughs> it's uh, it's one of those instruments. You either love it or you hate it. You know, like a lot of things. In life. Well, not, no, there are not many things that are that clean cut. But uh, I am the... I have to dig this on. Now, wait a minute. I'm just going to decide which one I'm going to use tonight. George, I'll let you pick the instrument. I mean, this is like Isaac Stern turning to the conductor and saying, do you want me to use my Stradivarius tonight? Or would you prefer the uh, Guarnieri or the Amati? Hey, listen to this one now. Not bad. Now, here, listen to this one, George. Huh? How about this one? Or you like that mellow one. Well, let's try this one here first. Wait a minute. You haven't heard the other ones. I have a lot of them here, man. You like this one? All right. I'll, I'll, now, you've narrowed it down to these two. You like the range. Let's try this one. That's a mean one. Listen to this one. Okay, George. Let's go. Ein, zwei, drei. Hit it.
like that man, huh? Now try the other side. Let's see what happens on that one, huh? Gee, I'm sorry to report here. I just got a note that Navy ships are now lousy with cockroaches. It's happening everywhere. They're, they're, they're going to be around long after we're gone. By the way, in the early days of seafaring, we have a note here that says cockroaches were more or less acceptable aboard Navy ships. In fact, all ships. They were tolerated in those days because the cockroaches picked on bed bugs. And it seems that given a choice, the sailors preferred the cockroaches. <laughs> a little taste there. All right, uh, that's a little uh, incidental note. As once again, we swing. Let's go, George. Come on, one, two. Let's go.
How you like, okay? Every time you show up, George, I just go out of my mind. <laughs> yes, sir, you're one of the few who likes them bad sounds. You notice the concentration it takes? Hey, listen, uh, you know, speaking of concentration, you don't mind if I... Here, yeah, here, here. <laughs> you know, the other day, I'm going to make a, a short report that, uh, that that got the old blood going, you know? You know, the other day, I'm on a, one of these book signings, and uh, there's a curious, uh, a very curious sidelight to book signings. And that is people have a tendency, and you've probably noticed it, Jerry, you've been on a couple of them now, to bring you things. I, I, they just bring you things, <laughs> which is kind of great, you know. Uh, for example, I was out in Hempstead, Long Island here, a couple of weeks ago, and for no reason at all, three kids came along and gave me a six-pack of Skippy cream-style peanut butter. <laughs> Did you know you can get it? It's a six-pack now. It comes with a little thing, you know, for real peanut butter cuckoo. And a lady gave me some uh, Wolf's Kasha. You know, she wanted me to eat it right there, you know, in front of all them people. So, uh, among other things, uh, a guy handed me, I was in, uh, where was it this happened? Uh, where was this guy? Boston? It was in Boston. Yeah, I'm in this bookstore in Boston. A lot of people, you know. And uh, we were signing books and stuff, and all of a sudden this guy comes up to me, and he says, here, he says, here's... He says, I read your book, and I dig it, you know. And he says, and so I'm going to give you a book. I said, okay, fine. He says, you're going to enjoy reading this book. It's an old book. And I said, oh, really? And I, and all the while, there's a lot of people. I was paying no attention. He says, yeah. He said, just read it. He says, a wild book. And he shoves it in my hand, and he goes his way. I never saw him again. Well, a couple of days go by, and this book is laying around on my desk, you know, amid all the rubble and cockroaches and stuff that we got down there on the 20th floor, see, and memos. Oh, you know, I... Every once in a while, all the memos that come in during a week, I just brush them off on the floor, you know, and start a little fire with them and, and uh, wait for the next week's crop. That's how we heat the 20th floor, burning memos. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, I, I, the other day, I just picked this book up, saying I'm waiting for a phone call, so I start leafing through it, you know. I just went, well, I might as well look at it, see. I can't believe it. It's a wild book. And it's called Bull Cook and Authentic Historical Recipes and Practices. Never saw this book. A little tiny, little sort of a gold-covered book. And it's, uh, of all things, dedicated to Christian Herter. You ever hear of Christian Herter? That name is familiar. Yeah. Well, I pick up this thing, and it's the most irascible book. It's a whole bunch of recipes. Now, that isn't exactly what the book is about, by any means. That every time he starts a recipe, whoever this guy is, he goes off into a long tirade about it. For example... Sandwich, Dora Hand, whatever that means. It says, I do not wish the people who made and are making American so-called historical movies for television and theaters any bad luck, but if they would all drop dead, it would be better for anyone. How's that for an opening line? They have stupidly and purposely twisted American history with the sole purpose of falsely poisoning the people's mind and putting money into their own pockets without any regard for the good of the country. <laughs> How's that for an opening of a recipe? Although usually considered to be smart, they are really a stupid lot, as truth about American history is much more interesting than their untrue propaganda. Well, now, what do you... Th now, you want to hear the truth now. You want to hear it? Dodge City. Now, you've heard of Dodge City, right? 
Dodge City, Kansas was just another western outpost until the Santa Fe Railroad came in and made it a shipping point for buffalo hides and meat and Texas cattle. Cattle were shipped from the town for nearly 15 years. Buffalo hides and meat were shipped until every single buffalo was killed. The cattle and the buffalo brought millions of dollars into Dodge City, and quite naturally the town expanded, and people from the east, middle, west, and the south migrated into Dodge City. It was always a well-run town, a little wild at times, but always under control. It never at any time contained any more prostitutes, grafters, or tin-horned sports per capita than to be found in any Hollywood area today at any time. <laughs> this guy hates Hollywood. I like a tin-horned sport. Somehow I'd like to meet a tin-horned sport. Hey, speaking of that, this is WOR New York. Speaking of sports, tin-horned sports. Say, I just learned something about wine. Great Western has a kicky set of booklets called A Little Something. Each one tells you a little something about their great wines, and you get them free from your local wine merchant. This one says, Sparkling Burgundy is actually red champagne. Compared to white champagne, it's a deep red color, it's heavier bodied and not as dry, but with the same tingling bubbles. And like all great western New York state champagnes, it's fermented right in the bottle to bring up its lively flavor. Try some. You'll see why it's called great. Great western wine And you thought we only made great champagne Great western, made by the Pleasant Valley Wine Company, Hammondsport, New York. <laughs> uh, we've been getting all kinds of calls from people about these wild birds. And they are flying. They really do. They, uh, they're they guaranteed to fly, and they fly about 600 feet, and they're operated with a with a rubber band. But what they are, what makes them really fascinating, is that they're genuinely an ornithopter, which means that it really does fly like a bird with, a, with the flapping of the wings. And for a long time, people have been trying to do a thing like this, and it actually works. It's a wild-looking thing. And they look like uh, the drawings by Leonardo da Vinci, they're based on the same drawings. They're orange and yellow and brown and very pretty. They're 16-inch wingspan. And if you'd like to order one, just send your check or money order. They cost three ninety-eight each. Send check or money order to Flying Birds, Department S, Post Office Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York, 10017. I'll repeat the address. So don't call us. If you miss it, you'll have to listen again. It's Flying Birds... Department S, Post Office Box 199, Grand Central Station, New York, New York. Okay, 398, check or money order. And by the way, spe uh, speaking of sending money, we'd like to uh, point out to you that the WOR Christmas Fund is still swinging, and if you haven't uh, contributed to this excellent charity, what it does is buy gifts for kids that are in hospitals in the New York area. And they really give them fine gifts. These are not little plastic gimmicky gifts. They're really great gifts. And if you'd like to contribute to this fund, which is one of the oldest charities in New York City and uh, one of the most respected, send your check or money order, whatever you'd care to send, to WOR Children's Christmas Fund. And the address is Box 710, which is cleverly our frequency. Box 710, Times Square Station, New York. I repeat, that's WOR Children's Christmas Fund, Box 710, Times Square Station, New York. 
and the zip is 10036. 10036. All right, you hear all that? Get the potatoes out of your ears and get moving. Now, you know, uh, that's a great phrase, a tin horn. I wonder what, what, what the origin of the phrase tin horn sport is. Now, what they mean by a tin horn, I don't know. But uh, he says they didn't have any more tin horn sports than you find in Hollywood, in present-day Hollywood. Entertainment. Did you know that entertainment was excellent in Dodge City? You never see this when Gary Cooper's walking along the street there. You think the only entertainment they got is them dancing girls. <laughs> you know what dancing girls, they sure danced. Entertainment was excellent. Such stars as Eddie Foy like Dodge City. He played there, as well as many other Broadway stars of the period. Light opera songs were heard nightly and well-liked. I hate to hear that. I just can't see uh, the Dalton boys sitting down there watching the student prints. You know, I just can't. I just, uh, you know, someday my prince will come. And you hear the gunfire from down at the Silver Dollar. But uh, somehow I just hate to hear this. Fella, don't bother me with your truth. It says food and liquor in Dodge City were very good. It had a number of excellent restaurants. That's something you rarely see in a in a Western movie. It's a guy eating. You know, the only time did you? They don't. They don't. Yeah, they drink a lot. Oh, a lot of drinking. Yeah, and, and uh, lots of drinking. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder whether that booze was any good. I mean, you know, when they come in and say whiskey, and they drink it down. I wonder whether it was any good. You think it was good whiskey? You think it was bad stuff? Whiskey. They just toss it down. Well, you know, have you noticed another thing? The only time I ever remember a real big scene about either were two movies that had real big eating scenes in them, in westerns, and both of them I remember the name of one, but I don't remember the name of the other. And uh, the first one was a John Wayne movie, and I thought it was very funny. It was a lot of interesting ramifications. Real western fans hated this movie because John Wayne was sort of doing a takeoff on John Wayne in it. It was called The Man Who Shot Liberty Valence. Did you read that? Did you see that movie? That was a funny movie, see? And it was a scene when him and they're eating. They had this steak. You remember that scene? Burned his hand in the stove and all that, and he's back in there cooking, uh, washing dishes and stuff. Well, we never think of these guys eating. Well, there was another scene with Glenn Ford. Now, I don't know what movie this was. And uh, if you saw it, you probably remember it. But Glenn Ford goes into this joint, see? He's going to eat. He comes in. And, uh, and he's riding into town. And he's on this old horse, and he comes into town. You know Glenn Ford. He's always looking kind of mad, saying he comes in. He's got this cowboy hat on. And he, uh, I remember the scene. Yeah, he walks, he rides in the, into town. His horse is limping. So he gets off the horse in front of the, uh, in front of the uh, guy that fixes horses. What do they call that guy? The blacksmith, see? Yeah, the guy, the, the, the horse garage, see? And he goes in there, and he says to the guy, my horse is limping. At which point, though, the guy looks at the horse and he says, Yep, see, it has she lost a shoe back there just around the big bend there over by at Stony Creek. At which point he says, Fix her up. How long will it take? And he says, Well, it'll take about maybe 15, 20 minutes. I'll put a, I'll put a shoe on right now. We have her already. We, he says, I want you to feed the horse, water it down. I'll be back in a half an hour. Okay, you got the scene? And at that point he says, Say, hey, any place here where I can get a bite to eat? which point the blacksmith says, yeah, he said, the Chinese, the Chinese restaurant down the street, old Chin Lee down there, runs a Chinese restaurant about three or four doors down, right past the barbershop. So I'm right, you can see, it's right past, uh, right past Silver Dollar down there. So at which point, he walks down the street. <laughs> and I'm watching this, you don't see these guys eat much, right? 
So he walks in, and a Chinese restaurant did. You know, not ready to accept a Chinese restaurant in the middle of the, you know, the Dodge City. But yet, that's a, a historical fact. Did you know that? And a reason for it. Do you have any reason why? Well, all right, I'll tell you the reason why. That when they were building the railroad out west, almost all the laborers that they got, they got a whole fantastic crowd of laborers who were Chinese. And so the West has got a lot of Chinese restaurants. They got a lot more than 49th Street, uh, you know, way a lot more. And they get great ones. See, but here's this Chinese, and he's got this Chinese restaurant. Now, this was one of the great eating scenes I ever saw in a movie. So he sits down at the counter, and this Chinese guy's behind the counter. He says, Wild up, He says, Well, give me some chop suey. And so the Chinaman says, Okay, well, chop suey coming up. And he runs down into the kitchen. A couple of minutes later, and he's and Glenn Ford is looking around, and you see a couple of guys walking past the joint. He's all by himself in there, and he's just watching the town go by. When the when the <laughs> when the guy running the place comes out with his great big bowl of Chinese food, it's real Chinese food. He lays it down in front of him. By the way, this movie's in color, so it looked like you, you could really see it. it's Chinese food. So he lays it down in front of in front of Glenn Ford, and Glenn Ford just starts to eat it. So he leans over, and he's got his hat on, he starts to eat Chinese food. At which point, the action began. At which point, a hand comes over. It comes from out of the screen. It comes right over Glenn Ford's shoulder, and it's got a cigar butt. And it just sticks the cigar butt and stubs it out right in his Chinese food. Well, you see Glenn Ford. There's a shot of his face. You see his eyeballs bugging, and you see, you see that that guy just made a bad mistake, whoever that was. <laughs> Ford turns around, see, and he says to the guy, Now, what'd you do that for? <laughs> well, I don't want to tell you how the action went from that moment, but I, I, just, <laughs> I just want to say, you don't often see, uh, you know, restaurant scenes in the West. In the, in the, you know, you don't think these guys ever eat. Well, here, according to this book writer here, entertainment was excellent. Food and liquor in Dodge City were very good, and it had a number of very excellent restaurants. And what do you think they offered? Western beef, veal, buffalo, quail, wild doves, wild ducks, venison, as well as pork, ham, chicken, and turkey. Scotch and Irish whiskeys were available. Mm-hmm. As well as the best American whiskeys, particularly bourbons. Well, so that there goes your theory. There goes the rotgut theory, the red-eye theory. It says you could always get the best American beers as well as... Hey, that's something you never see him drink in a Western. No guy ever comes and says, draw me a beer. Never. They never drink beer. It's always whiskey. Whiskey. You see, you always get the best American beers as well as the best of Irish and English beers. Ice chests were used, and the beer was kept always at the proper cool temperature. Contrell and Cochrane Stout Irish beer distributed by Ross of Belfast and Dublin was a great favorite. Champagne was available in many of the restaurants. <laughs> Now, do you want to hear what else he says about the gunfighters? He says the gunfighters were actually few and far between. All the ones of note were businessmen, cattlemen, saloon and restaurant owners, gamblers, law officers, or bank robbers. Well, now, you know, that's kind of a silly statement. That's like saying all the gunmen were bank robbers. Well, we understand that, fella. Gunfighting was a sideline to all of them. Now, of course, you get the movie, you think that it's, uh, you know, it's the main occupation out there, having walk-downs. Yeah, I imagine every Sunday you'd go out and watch the walk-down for this week, you know, and see who gets it in the air. 
Gunfighting was a sideline to all of them. All of the ones of any note were blue-eyed. I look. I don't make. I don't make the news. I only report it, friends. I'm, I'm just telling you what it says here. All of the all of the best were blue-eyed. Most of them were ex-Confederate soldiers. Well, that fits. And strongly pro-Confederate and highly sensitive about any remarks from the Confederacy. Many of them were related. Jesse James, the first of the gunfighters, and his cousins, the Younger Brothers and Dalton Brothers and John Ringo, are a typical example. Their bloodlines all came from the island of Britain. They were British. The Picts were the only true British people, like the Indians are the only true Americans. The French, Danes, Norwegians, Italians, and German types of people invaded and fought in Britain throughout the centuries. Well, very few people, listen to this, very few people could gunfight under any would gunfight under any circumstances, as the odds were such that if you had any number of gunfights, you were almost sure to get killed, no matter how good you were. Eventually, you'd get it. Well, that makes sense. I mean, you can get shot by somebody just getting off a lucky one. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's the end of the ball game. You know, that's that's why they call them guns equalizers. I mean, the good guy was just as good as the bad guy often, and vice versa. He says, here are some of the facts on gunfighting. John McLinn, who rode with Quantrill and Jesse James, was a good friend of mine. This guy, the writer, had a friend who was with a guy who rode with James, as well as A.M. King. Wyatt Earp's old deputy, George Earp, cousin of Wyatt, is still alive at this writing. The Colt 45 caliber single-action revolver is quite easy to shoot, and a natural pointer. If you hit a man with the huge 45 caliber bullet, he died in nearly all cases, but rarely dropped immediately when hit. In order to win a gunfight, you had to shoot a man in the heart or head before he could shoot you. Hit a man any other place in the body, a tough, well-muscled man could shoot you several times before he fell. Drawing fast, now this is an interesting thing, was of little or no importance. Now, you don't buy that, do you? Well, see, we've been brought up on that. You want to hear why he says it? Drawing fast was of not little or no importance at all. Shooting accurately was of greater importance. In fact, much greater importance if you were to live through a gunfight. <laughs> Shoot good is more important than getting it out quick. Drawing fast and shooting accurately enough to stop a man from shooting you hardly ever went well together. Why? Well, here's why. If you pull your gun out fast and shoot it fast, it's quite obvious you don't spend much time aiming it. Now, he says if you pull it out fast and then aim, you might as well not have a fast draw because the next guy will get his out too. That makes sense. You see, in other words, a, a, quick, a quick draw is not really the answer. He says such little things as a as a pistol sticking for a split second in its holster, being slightly off balance, not feeling just right that day, having a headache or a hangover or more than three drinks of whiskey, a too loose pistol cylinder, a worn sear, all meant sure death in gunfighting if you were up against a good, experienced opponent whose luck was running good. In other words, you better not drink before you shoot. And yet, they always show scenes where these guys are in the bar, you know, tossing it off, and then they go out and shoot it out. He says, no, forget it. <laughs> On top, hey, this is something. Is this interesting to you? 
He says, yeah, I mean, you never hear a, a real serious discussion of, of actual gunfighting in the West. Now, remember, he is quoting a guy who rode with Jesse James. Yeah, his name was John McLynn, who rode with Quantrill and Jesse James. Okay, he says, on top of this, in those days, ammunition was very poorly made back in those days. And here's something you never see in a Western. It was not uncommon to have two shells that would not fire out of five. Duds. The gunfighters, listen to this little trick if you're going to be a gunfighter. The gunfighters stuffed newspaper into the ends of their holsters, rubbed graphite on the inside of their holsters, filed off the front sights to prevent the gun from sticking in its holster, bought new guns continually as soon as the cylinders or hammer became slightly loose. But still, with all these precautions, gunfighting was a very poor gamble for both opponents. Wham! And into Dodge City came lovely Dora Hand. Did you ever hear of her? Well, this is all a recipe I'm reading to you. I'm reading to you a recipe on how to make a sandwich a la Dora Hand. Into Dodge City, in the middle of all this, came lovely Dora Hand a beautiful black-haired, lovely-skinned woman with green-gray eyes and fine manners. She immediately took a job in a dance hall as a singer. She had a marvelous voice and sang popular songs as well as light opera. That's something you never see uh, Claire Trevor doing, singing light opera in the middle of the, <laughs> the dance hall scene. Dodge City, right down to the cowpuncher, flipped and stood in line and came in off the cattle trails to hear Dora Hand singing, whether it was popular songs or opera. They loved it. Dora became a great personal friend of Dog Kelly, mayor of Dodge City. Did you ever hear of him? Dog Kelly, mayor of Dodge City. Dog Kelly. They called Kelly Dog Kelly because he loved greyhound racing and raised fine greyhounds for raised fine greyhounds for racing, which was done continually outside of the city. God, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic, though, if they ever did a Western the way the Western, the way it really was? Wouldn't it be groovy to see, uh, you know, to see the, the Dalton boys and to see uh, Jack Palance at the dog races? <laughs> After that, they get out and have some champagne, you know, and sit around there and yell and holler. Dora kept strictly by herself or with other, with other singers. She, she didn't have nothing to do with any man, and she, it was said that she did not care to marry. These facts were well-known in Dodge City and well-respected. Dora Hand also went under the name of Fanny Keenan. Her real name was not known until long after her death. Her name actually was Germaine DuPont, and she came from New York City. Her wealthy parents trained her to be an opera singer, and she had every sign and possibility of being one of the greatest. She fell in love with a young man named Marvin Uist, who worked as an accountant for a marine importing firm. Her parents did not approve of Marvin, and her father had him discharged from his job. Marvin had his neck broken with a heavy import box, was accidentally knocked off the top of a pile of stuff by a stevedore. As he left his office after being discharged, Germaine DuPont left New York one week later and headed for Dodge City and was never seen in New York again. She never returned and never wrote to her parents. She, like Wyatt Earp, came to Dodge City to forget after the death of a sweetheart. Well, anyway, do you want to hear what her famous sandwich is? Dora created a sandwich. She was a fine, cultured woman. You never think of recipes coming out of Dodd City. You are not going to get a recipe. 
Dora created a sandwich known in Dodge as Sandwich Dora Hand. It was very popular, and in fact many men, such as Wyatt Earp, would travel miles to have one of these magnificent sandwiches. It was truthfully said to taste better after a cool beer than anything else in the world. Men would ride miles to get one. Here is the original recipe. All set? If you want to have a real Western sandwich, take two slices of bread or a hamburger bun. Butter the side of both pieces lightly. Take several fish and clean them. Catfish, bullheads, perch, crappies, or any good-eating fish are excellent for this purpose. Fill a pot with water. Put two level tablespoons of vinegar in the water, a quarter teaspoon of black pepper, and a half teaspoon of salt. Put the fish in the pot and boil the fish until well done. Depending on the size of the fish, this takes three to about nine minutes. Remove the fish and let them drain on a paper. Place two level tablespoons of butter in a frying pan and melt it over medium heat. Now, place the fish on a plate and remove all the skin and bones. Mash up the fish well with your fork. Are you following this? Mash up the fish. Place the mashed fish in your frying pan and fry the mashed fish lightly until just slightly browned. Have you ever had mashed fish? It's really good. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting idea. As it fries, keep mashing it up so that it is in really tiny, small pieces, almost a paste. With a spoon, take some of the fish and spread a thick layer over the butter side of one piece of the bread or bun. Press the fish well down into the bread and bun so that it stays well in place. Put thinly sliced dill pickle over the fish and thinly sliced onion over the dill pickles. Put a little mustard over the onions Salt well and serve steaming hot. Today, a little tartar sauce goes well on the sandwich also. That was Dora's sandwich. He says, I have eaten countless numbers of these great Dora hand sandwiches, and they're really and truly good. This is great food and should be popular. It should be as popular as a good hamburger. Be sure to try this famous sandwich at your first opportunity. And while you're doing it, bend your head in a little prayer for Dora, too. She was a fine woman. <laughs> How do you like this thing? The wild book. I'll tell you, I just sit here. Uh, listen to this one now. Uh, he has a story in here. While I was glancing, this is the first one I picked up. Wait a minute, where is it here? The wild, wild. Uh, he has a, a, a great story here about Caesar salad. Do you ever have Caesar salad? Listen to this now. Caesar salad. This is an excellent salad and is a famous example of how cooks in so-called good restaurants can really foul up an excellent recipe from pure ignorance of cooking. He's going to give you the straight dope on, on the Caesar salads. Caesar salad was invented about 1903 by Giacomo Junia, an Italian cook in Chicago, Illinois. Giacomo Junia was the cook in a small restaurant called the New York Cafe. He catered to American tastes as spaghetti and pizza in those days were little eaten by anyone, including Italians. It is sometimes falsely stated that this salad was invented in Tijuana, Mexico, during the Prohibition period. Anybody tells you that, you just laugh at them, see? They also say it was invented in San Francisco. Nothing could be further from the truth. The only thing invented in Tijuana were the finest methods ever produced to clip tourists. 
Giacomo Junia, now here's this guy, he really lays it out, doesn't he? Giacomo Junia called the salad Caesar salad. He put a few pieces of cos lettuce. Do you know what cos lettuce is? C-O-S. That's romaine lettuce. Have you ever heard of that? That's that kind of bitter lettuce. He put a few pieces of cos lettuce in the salad to add a slightly bitter touch to it. Cos lettuce originated in Italy. Light green, dark green, and red spotted varieties were described in Italy in 1623. It had been widely grown in Italy from about the time Christ was born. Cos lettuce was common in Italy during the Middle Ages. It was and is cooked as a vegetable and never eaten alone as a salad as its taste is too strong. A few pieces of cos lettuce in Italy were occasionally added to other lettuce for salads. Cos lettuce was taken to France by Rabelais in 1537. What a wild book this is. At the end of the 16th century, it still was rarely grown in France or Germany, and when eaten, it was cooked as a vegetable and never used in salads. Giacomo called the salad Caesar salad after Julius Caesar, the greatest Italian of all time. <laughs> I like that, the greatest Italian. I never thought of Caesar as the greatest Italian of all time. Giacomo was not an exceptional cook. In fact, was just a fair one. One thing that he tried to make with absolutely no success was mayonnaise for salads and for serving with fish. No matter how hard he tried, he just could not make mayonnaise properly. He finally took the mayonnaise basic ingredients because he thought that the taste of them should be good on salad, even if used separately, added some French fried bread for his French customers and some bacon to please his German customers, many of whom lived in the neighborhood, and Caesar's salad was born. Junia never thought that the salad would be popular and was more surprised than anyone when people began to come in and ask for it. Many itinerant cooks learned how to make the salad, and soon it was made all over North America and even in Europe. Junia left Chicago for San Francisco, California, and shortly afterwards died. Here is his original recipe, which is unlike any of the fouled-up Caesar salad recipes that are pawned, uh, fobbed off on people today as Caesar salad. Okay? Take white fresh bread, cut it up into about a quarter-inch or slightly larger cubes, take your French fryer filled with rendered beef suet and heat to the same hot temperature as for French frying potatoes. French fry the bread cubes until they are just barely brown. Watch them. Do not over fry them. Take about three dozen pieces of lettuce, about two and a half inches square, and French fry them until they become just barely limp. This does not take long. Watch them carefully. Take a large salad bowl. If you have leaf lettuce, use it. If not, use two heads of head lettuce. Either leaf or head lettuce can be used to make this salad. Tear the lettuce up into small pieces. If you have romaine, throw a few pieces of that in it. This is not necessary, however. Never use all cos lettuce, as this is a terrible salad. And then mix it up. He says mix it up with uh, a little uh, salad. You never use olive oil, he said. Just mix it all up and throw in a couple of eggs, raw, and you have Caesar salad. <laughs> Salt and pepper. But uh, now that's, uh, uh, here I'm sitting here saying, I'm looking at this crazy book. Listen to this. Here's, here's a headline. Why it is impossible for modern women to bake well. Okay. I didn't even read that. The tomato and the skunk. That's an interesting headline. The tomato and the skunk. It says, uh, tomatoes are greatly prized by skunks. <laughs> no, he means skunk skunks, not people. Skunk skunks. 
I didn't know that. He says, for this reason, it was thought throughout North America that they were poisonous. Because the skunk ate them. It says they were cultivated by the Indians. And here's an interesting thing I didn't know. I don't know whether he's telling the truth or not. He says, today's strains of tomatoes are no better than the selected strains that the Indians were growing a thousand years ago in North America. Europeans never saw a tomato till the Indians showed them. They then thought they were poisoned because the skunks ate them and that only Indians could eat them and live. This belief persisted for a great many years. Finally, the Europeans found that they could eat tomatoes and live, so they sent seeds back to Europe. The Europeans living in Europe liked tomatoes at once, and they became an important item in Europe's diet. Like so many things taken for granted, Italian spaghetti is about as Italian as Irish potato, which in turn is about as Irish as corn on a cob or Hungarian goulash, which is not Hungarian at all. The Indians, I didn't know this, were making spaghetti with tomato sauce. Many centuries ago, baking potatoes, eating corn on a cob, and making paprika stew, or what we call Hungarian goulash today, thousands of years before any European even knew they existed. <laughs> so I'm reading this book, you know, and I'm sitting down there people come in and say, what are you reading? So, well, I'm reading the real story of Dora Hand's Great Sandwiches. And they turn around and say, Dora Hand. I say, yep, Dora Hand. I'm reading also about Norwegian fried ham, where they make fried ham better than any place in the world. Did you know that? I didn't know it. Here's this thing here. Oh, I, you know, it just goes on and on. This guy's got a... The name of the book is Bull Cook and Authentic Historical Recipes and Practices. It's uh, <laughs> by George Leonard Herter. George Leonard, you can see why he dedicated to Christian Herder. Isn't he some kind of a politician or something? Yeah, he's a politician. Mr. Fulbert, by the way, Mr. Fulbert of Normandy, France, was a poor man who tanned hides to make a living. He also invented the mashed potato. He had a beautiful daughter named Arlette Fulbert. It goes on like that. <laughs> I don't know what the connection was, having a beautiful daughter inventing mashed potatoes. <laughs> oh, when will it ever end? Oh, God Almighty, George. Saloon sandwich. The popular saloon sandwich, which was eaten in the saloons throughout the West, immediately before and after a gunfight, can be made the following. You know, they use roast beef or buffalo hump in it. Yeah. Sounds exciting. Look it up there, big George. A little gunpowder there around the edges. Goodbye, game. Yeah. Oh, this is WOR New York. Now it comes with the news with John Scott.